0: Trust, trust, it makes and breaks life. You might think I'd say, well, no, trust, that makes and breaks relationships. But life is made up of, life is defined by our relationships. So trust makes and breaks life. Trust, we experience it in a lot of our relationships, all of our significant relationships, from a a husband and a wife, to co-workers, to teammates, to soldiers, to children and parents, to co-workers. Trust is such a big part of those significant relationships in our lives. Trust means that my life or some piece of my life, my well-being is in your hands, and I'm okay with that. It's a good thing that it's in your hands. And man, when I've got a life where I've got a lot of those relationships where that's a good thing, where that trust is being experienced, well, life is generally pretty good in that case. But when we experience the the breakdown of trust in some of those significant relationships, wow, some of us we don't ever get over that, do we? Trust is built. You, you build it by experience with each other, by knowledge of each other. Trust is built on a track record. It's a track record. We walk down a track, we run a track of life together, and by those experiences, we build a record that says, my life is safe in that person's hands. I can go into the firestorm with that person. That, that person can know the, the secret stuff about me. That person can, uh, will always stand beside me when, when life is raining down. You know, a lot of times we think of the benefits we get from a relationship when there's trust. But you know what? Trust also means that I'm willing to endure. I'm willing to endure cost. I'm willing to endure discomfort. I'm willing to endure some hard things because that trust is there and I know at the end of the day, it'll be worth it. Now let's switch gears for a moment. Jesus has got a large crowd of people following Him. As a matter of fact, He is experiencing what, what we, for some reason, at least it, it, it seems like here recently we refer to this term as a, a rock star status in our culture. Well, that's kind of what is happening with Jesus. He has thousands and thousands of people following Him. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 6, verse 2, it says a huge crowd was following him and in John 6 it says there's this massive crowd running back and forth across the sea of Galilee they're 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 traveling they're chasing literally doing anything they can to get close to Jesus anything they can to touch Jesus it is an exciting time it is a fun time Jesus is feeding people he's doing miracles he's teaching about God it's a lot of fun Now, if you can imagine, if you're one of the 12 disciples, well, that makes it pretty fun for you too, doesn't it? I I mean, I walk with, I live with every day the guy that everybody else is trying to get close to. And of course, as his status and his popularity rises up, well, those who were closest to him, those who were around him, their popularity kind of went up. They kind of reaped the benefit. It kind of spilled over onto them. So it's a fun time for them also. An exciting time for them also. But it's about to change. It's about to change very rapidly and very radically. It's about to be not so much fun following hanging around as a matter of fact it's about to exact a cost on their lives here's the question do they have the track record do they have the experiences with Jesus that they will hang on when things are falling out all around Jesus will they remain faithful and true when it's not fun when it's not comfortable It's a very important question. It's a question all of us have to ask because Jesus expects that trust. He expects us to hang in there. As we move through John chapter 6, and by the way, this chapter, certainly in John, is one of the most tumultuous chapters in the whole book because of the radical change, the radical teachings that are going to happen in this chapter. And Jesus in this chapter is going to move from the beginning from being this rock star to being a religious nut. It's going to move from being an atmosphere of real excitement to being an atmosphere of bewilderment. Will they hang tough? Well, what we're going to see today is that Jesus is going to give them a sign. He's going to build into their track record so that they will. Jesus expects the trust but He gives us the track record. Would you turn with me this morning to John chapter 6? John chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, I hope you'll use one of ours. They're there in in a chair in front of you. If not right in front of you, maybe two or three seats down, you can point to one. I'm sure somebody will hand you one. We're looking at John chapter 6. Actually, again this week. Last week we were in verses 1 to 15. You remember those verses? We saw the fourth sign. We're looking at seven signs revealed in the Gospel of John. Seven signs Jesus performed to point to who He is, to what He is. And last week in that fourth sign, we saw Jesus feed 5,000 people. We saw Him multiply those, that bread and that, and that fish. And today we come to the fifth sign. A fifth sign that points to who Jesus is. Now, for me, the real impact of this sign is understanding the context. It's understanding what is going on all around this sign. Because it changes so much. This sign, this fifth sign, takes place on a boat. Now, when Jesus gets onto the boat, or when the disciples get onto that boat... Man, Jesus is experiencing that that wild popularity. As a matter of fact, look at verse 14 of chapter 6. Verse 16 and 17 is when they get, the disciples get in the boat. Look at verse 14. When the people saw the sign he had done, that's referring to the the feeding of the 5,000, when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, This really is the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus knew they were about to come and take him by force to make him what? King. Now that's pretty popular, folks. And there's a lot of people I've really looked up to. A lot of people I thought were great. A lot of people I wanted to be around. I didn't want them to be king in my life. I didn't want them to rule over me and be able to tell me what to do. Boy, doesn't that say something about the popularity, about the atmosphere, about what people were seeing and experiencing? They wanted to make Jesus their king. Within about 18 hours, not even a full day, within about 18 hours, look at what's going to happen. Look at verse 60. Same chapter, look at verse 60. Therefore, when many of His disciples... Now, that word disciples, we see that a lot. When we hear the word disciples, we think of the twelve. And they're going to be referred to in this chapter as the twelve. But disciples is also kind of a generic term that simply means follower, learner, student. You've got all these people running after Jesus, chasing after Jesus, and they're listening, they're learning, they're kind of being students of this new teacher. And so they're generically referred to as disciples. Verse 60, Therefore when many, not a few, not half, but when many of His disciples heard this, they said, This teaching is hard. Who can accept it? It gets worse. Look at verse 66. From that moment, many, there's that word again, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. This is when everything begins to change for Jesus as far as the masses are concerned. Now, you may be wondering in the space of, of 50 verses, you may be wondering in the, in the space of 18 hours, what happened? What changed everybody's mind? Well, again, you've got to envision all these people chasing after Jesus, wanting to get close to Jesus, and they're going from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other and then back. Where is Jesus? And in verse 26 and 27, the boat that Jesus is on with the disciples lands. He gets off the boat. There's all these people there. And He chastises them. He says, you know, you guys running around after me? He says, you know, it's really pretty... Pretty superficial. It's really pretty selfish. You know, all you're really focused on is your gut. All you're really focused on is a is a temporary need, a physical need in the moment. <laughs> Can you imagine being in that crowd? Going, well, boy, look who woke up on the wrong side of the bed today. Little Mr. Grumpy here. But, but why is Jesus chastising? I mean, Is that what Jesus wants? A bunch of people following Him? Why chastise them? You know, physical needs are important. Jesus didn't say your physical needs are unimportant. They're just not the most important. And you know, in our nature, if we're not careful, it is very easy for us to spend not only every day, but our entire lives trying to get those physical needs met. The pursuit of caring for those physical needs will literally suck us down and we'll give our entire life away doing nothing more, as Jesus was saying, than trying to put some bread in our stomach. Jesus says, yeah, I gave you bread, but look, you're hungry again. I want to give you something better. I want to give you something so much more. And he launches into this teaching in about verse 29 and following about the bread of life. A spiritual bread. And he said, I gave you this physical bread and you consume that. I want to give you myself. I want you to consume me. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. You imagine people going, what is this? This is, this is cannibalistic. This guy's nuts. And Jesus unfolds this whole bread of life teaching. As a matter of fact, out of these 30 verses, which we're not going to go over today, but out of that comes some of the foundational principles, the foundational beliefs of Christianity. I want to run through some of them real quick. If you'll just kind of look down there. uh, Each one of these could be a sermon. I'm not going to elaborate them. I just want to make about nine statements. Look at what comes out of this teaching in which all these people say, that's it. (laughs) I'm done. This guy just went overboard. This is what he teaches. Verse 29, the only work that saves is belief in Christ. That's it. Number two, the Father sent the Son from heaven to be the source of eternal life. Number three, Christ gives eternal satisfaction to those who come to Him in faith. Number four, eternal life is the sovereign work of the grace of God. Number five, God guarantees eternal salvation to those who believe in Him. Number six, salvation is initiated by God and will be consummated at the resurrection. Number seven, Christ is the personal revelation of the Father. Number eight, Christ is the bread of heaven who gives eternal life. And number nine, personally appropriating Jesus Christ by faith results in eternal life. Now there's the rub. Personally appropriating. The symbol that Jesus uses for that is eating Him. Eating His flesh. Drinking His blood. And they missed the symbolism of it. Remember, what has He just done? He's just given them physical bread. Do you trust what you put in your mouth? Of course you do i mean you may not think about it very much but you trust what you put in your mouth as a matter of fact if for any reason you don't trust you know it smells funny you know those fish i had up here last week you know sometimes i amaze myself at just how stupid i am i went home and i put them in a baggie because you know after all baggie will seal up the odor and i put them in the garbage. Do you realize by about Tuesday, you couldn't come halfway down my driveway without throwing up? See, I'm not going to put that in my mouth, are you? No, if there's something about my nose, if there's something that I see, you know, it may be absolutely fine. But if I have any question, I'm not putting that in my mouth. What you put in your mouth, you trust. Well, Jesus said, I gave you that bread you trusted me to give you that physical bread. You put that in your mouth in the same way you need to so absorbingly, so completely trust me. It's as if you're consuming me. And when you have that kind of trust, man, you know God, you have eternal life, you're forgiven of your sins, you're saved. You need to trust me in that fashion. But in all of these teachings, you kind of hear Jesus saying, hey, you know what? I am life, I'm it. I am your only opportunity for life. I am your only chance for life. If you want life, you've got to want me. Now how would a crowd respond to that? Well, I mean, you got people saying there, well, look who has a little happy opinion of themselves. You've got other people who are very what is this guy saying? It's it's confusing you got other people who think what he's saying is blasphemous. They're ready to stone him. They're ready to kill him. There's other people that are are angry. And so things begin to fall out. There's people questioning. They're criticizing. As we read, they're leaving him. Now remember our 12 guys? Remember our disciples standing there? Can you imagine? They're, They're standing there. They're watching this whole scene. And you know what? They're probably thinking, man what is he saying gosh man that's getting way out there and, and they they see the crowd starting to rumble and and people are getting up and leaving and some people are starting to catcall and yell and, and and all this and it's starting to get uncomfortable and all of a sudden you know i was standing here right next to jesus now i'm going Wait, aren't isn't that kind of natural i mean this is this is not fun Are they going to trust? Are they going to hang in there when it starts getting hairy? Jesus knew this moment was coming. And so He gave them a sign to empower, to embolden, to encourage their faith. We see that sign in verse 16. Look at it here, chapter 6, verse 16, the fifth of our seven signs. When evening came, His disciples went down to the sea got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. Then a high wind arose and the sea began to churn. After they had rowed about three or four miles, they're, they're three or four miles out into the sea, okay? This boat isn't somewhere along the edge. It's not somewhere where there's a sandbar. They are three or four miles out into the sea. They saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him on board and at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. Jesus was walking on water. I'd pay to see that, would you? I, uh, 25 bucks, I'd like to see that. That sounds cool. Jesus walking on water. Now, if you know you think about it, we, we've studied five signs now. This is the second sign we've seen with water, isn't it? Remember the very first sign? Jesus had all those pots of water and he turned them into wine? Now that was a, a revelation. This guy is the Son of God. He, he has power. He has authority over natural elements. So in some respects, sign number five is not a whole lot different than sign number one. It's just another demonstration of his power over physical elements. But there again, it's a lot different. He's walking on water. It's kind of unique, isn't it? That's kind of awesome. And, and He's not just walking across. You know, this isn't the shallow end of the pool after the lifeguards have vacuumed. This isn't gliding across a puddle. He's out in the midst of the sea, in the middle of a storm, and He comes walking up to him. It says they were afraid. Now, I don't think there's another miracle. It's recorded where it says they were afraid of Jesus. But I guess it's a little bit unnerving to see some guy tooling across the water in the middle of a storm. You know, almost 200 times, almost 200 times in the Bible, the first words out of God's mouth when He interacts with somebody is, don't be afraid. You know, when you're really interacting when you're really interacting with the power of God, the presence of God, the revelation of God, folks, it can be unnerving. It's more than you. It's more than you. Stay away from any kind of teaching that seeks to bring God down to your level and make Him normal. God's unnerving when you're really interacting with His power and presence. And so almost 200 times, don't be afraid. And then comes, look at that, three words. As a matter of fact, only what? Five letters. And those three words make up some of the most important words in all the New Testament. Jesus says, it is I. You say, what? It is I? That's that's some of the most important words? That doesn't look very important. We'd read right by that and run on. Now there is something tremendously big being communicated here. To understand these three words, we have to go all the way back to the second book of the Bible. Exodus chapter 3, another one of these big stories that a lot of you would remember. Remember Moses standing before the burning bush? And God was revealed in that burning bush. And while Moses is there, one of the things God does is reveal his personal name got a lot of names for God, but this is the revealed personal name of God. Moses is standing there and God says, you tell them my name is I am. I am. It's a name that refers to the self-sufficiency of God. He is completely sufficient all in and of himself. Do You know that nothing is necessary to God? Nothing. Not air. Oxygen is not necessary to God. Not water. Not bread. God doesn't need bread and water. It's not necessary to Him. Relationships are not necessary. Oh, God's chasing after us because He needs us. No, He doesn't need us. There's nothing above Him that He has to respond to. There's nothing below Him that He is obligated to. God is not necessary. He or he, Nothing is necessary to God. He is completely self-sufficient. He is the I am Wherever you go in space, I am. Wherever you go in time, I am. That is the revealed name of God. That's what we find in the Hebrew language. Well when the priests translate the Hebrew language into a Greek Old Testament, and they come to that passage, they translate it this way: "Ego, a me: I am, or it is." I guess what same two Greek words are used right here, Echo a me. As Jesus comes walking across that water, he says, "I am." To you and me in the English language, a bunch of Gentiles, we run right by it and don't see a thing. I tell you what, there was twelve Jews on that boat who knew exactly what he was saying. The big thing here, folks, is not Jesus walking on water. The big thing right here is Jesus saying, "I am God." I am the God of all eternity. I am the God of all time. I was the God who was talking to Moses in that burning bush. I am. Now that's a big statement. I mean, I can stand up here and say, I am. And you should say to me, oh yeah? When's the last time you walked on water? You see, Jesus walks on water just as a piece of evidence to verify and to back up the bigger thing going on here, this statement, I am am this sign is to point to it is to give clear conviction to these 12 guys this guy is god now think about that think about what they've just seen they've seen him walking across the water they've seen him reveal himself to be the i am that they have known in the jewish faith they get off the boat and they step into this scene where all of a sudden everything starts to go bad. There's criticizing, people leaving, people getting angry. It's not so much fun right now. What am I going to do? I did this is I don't know if this is really what I signed up for. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I just saw that guy walk on water a few hours ago. That guy is... he's God. He's God. You see, folks, we've seen Jesus walk on water. You say, no, wh- no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I didn't see Jesus walk on John says he saw Jesus walk on water. But, but I don't know John. Matter of fact, how, how do I even know John's not lying? Do you know John's not lying? That's a good question. It's a very good question. Is John lying? i got a better question. Why would John be lying? Why would John be lying right here? Well, I said, well you know, he's, he's trying to start a religion. No, he's already got one. He's Jewish. And he's not trying to be something else. He's Jewish. Very happy with it. Oh, well, you know, he's, uh, he's uh, you know how preachers are. They've got to tell these fanciful stories and get people all worked up and excited. He's probably raising money here pretty soon. Probably trying to become a TV preacher. Well, there's, there's no TVs. And he's not raising any money. Why would John say he saw Jesus walk on water? As a matter of fact, why would Matthew say it? Matthew was also there on that boat. He recorded in his gospel that Jesus walked on water. Why would he say that? As a matter of fact, Mark recorded it in his gospel. Now, Mark was not an eyewitness. Mark was not one of the twelve disciples, but Mark was a student of, a follower of Peter. Peter was on the boat. Peter told Mar- Mark about it. Mark recorded in his gospel. Why would these guys record something they knew was not true? Because they're getting nothing out of it. As a matter of fact, the only thing they got out of their faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, their faith that He could walk on water, their faith that He rose again, the only thing they really got out of that at the end of the day was they all got killed, they got murdered. So we talk about faith, faith's faith's unreasonable, faith's illogical. Well, I tell you what, folks, I think it makes a lot more sense, I think it's a lot more logical to believe the historical evidence of these guys' eyewitness account that they saw Jesus walk on water, and I believe that because He's the Son of God, and He has power and authority over the elements, and He can do that, than for your faith, that this historical evidence is a lie because it makes absolutely no sense that people die for a lie. That people die for something they get nothing out of. That makes no sense. My point in all this, folks, is John gave an eyewitness account that he saw Jesus walk on water, which means today, folks, you have seen Jesus walk on water And this sign revealed to the twelve of them has been revealed to you and it is to have the same exact impact on your life that it had on these guys' lives. You say, well, what impact did it have on them? Well, what does that impact look like? Look at verse 66 again. Look at verse 66 in John 6. Let me read this again. From that moment, many of His disciples turned back and no longer accompany him. Therefore, Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, who will we go to? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe. Now folks, realize when he says those words, we have come to believe, it is literally probably like four, five, six hours ago that he saw Jesus Christ walk on water. That he saw Jesus Christ say, I am. So in a moment when it is very unpopular to be a Christian, when a moment that it is very uncomfortable to be near Christ, he says, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. We have come to believe and know. That's evidence. That's evidence. We've got a track record with you now. We have come to know that you are the Holy One of God you have seen Jesus walk on water so when it's uncomfortable to tell the truth you got to stop and tell yourself wait a minute I've seen that guy walk on water he's got the words of life said tell the truth he's the holy one of God I've got nowhere else to go I've got to tell the truth when you're called to be faithful, to take a stand, to be a witness, and nobody's applauding you for that. As a matter of fact, they're kind of mocking it. I mean, they're kind of making it look like anybody who's a believer, anybody who's a follower, they're kind of stupid, they're kind of ignorant. Oh, you're, you're kind of an elitist. Oh, you think you're one God's the only way. And, and everybody's questioning, everybody's criticizing. Jesus says, what are you going to do? you going to leave also? Oh no, Jesus, I, I saw you walk on water. You're the Holy One of God. No matter how uncomfortable it gets to know you and to follow you, I've got nowhere else to go. Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. That faith is not just a warm blanket. That faith is to be a dictate on our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for myself. I pray for each and every one of us in that room, that faith, that conviction of Peter. In a moment when it was very uncomfortable to be related to you, he stood up and said, you're the Holy One of God. There's nowhere else for us to go. And Lord, I thank you that Peter didn't have something that none of the rest of us have. Peter didn't say that because he's stronger than us or, or better than us. No, Peter, Peter just relied on the track record. Lord, I pray we would see today that we've got the same track record with you that, that Peter does. We've got the same evidence. We have the same opportunity to see. God, would you give us faith? And with that faith, a courage and a conviction, empower and embolden our walk with you. For we live in a world in which it is becoming increasingly uncomfortable to identify with you, to be related to you, to live the life you called us to live in, in holiness and in purity and truth and kindness and love and forgiveness. God, help me to see today that I forgive not because the person's changed, not because they ask for it. I forgive because you're the Holy One of God. And you've got the words of life. And in those words, you called me to forgive. Lord, throughout this week, maybe in places we're not even looking for you or seeing you, seeing what we should do in that moment, I pray right away we'd see you coming across the water in this storm. And we would say to ourselves, oh, wait a minute, this guy's God. I've got a responsibility right here. There's a way to live, there's a way to act, there's a way to speak in this moment right now. It's in the name of Jesus Christ. We ask for this help, Lord. Amen.